So last week, Galatians started the, the preaching through this letter that Paul wrote to the church that he planted, a uh, church that exists in what would be now modern-day Turkey. He planted this church, and he is alarmed, as we learned last week, he's astonished that they're departing from Jesus. They're departing from the grace of the gospel. We talked last week about the seriousness of the, of, of the gospel and Paul's letter to this church that he loves because there's nothing more important than the state of your soul. So let's just jump right in here and finish chapter 1. And let's read it remembering that though Paul wrote this, he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. He was, this, this, is, this is God's infallible, inerrant, holy Word. Let's, let's look at it and read it remembering that He desires to speak to us from us from this word. There's no other book like this. Amen? For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently, tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when He who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by His grace was pleased to reveal His Son to me, in order that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, Lord's brother, and what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Lord, I pray you would open your word to us and help us to understand what we're to make of this spiritual autobiography. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Brennan Manning, some of you may have heard of him, former Franciscan preach, uh, priest and a real preacher of the free grace of God in the gospel. He had said, he said something. He's been famously quoted. He wrote it in a book called The Ragamuffin Gospel that maybe some of you are familiar with. Uh, Rich Mullins, who was a, a, a contemporary Christian artist, who's since gone on to be with the Lord, very influenced him greatly, Brennan's writings. But Brennan Manning said this, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips 
and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. What's he saying? He's saying that what you believe influences the way you act. Right? Hypocrisy, I agree with him on this point, hypocrisy hurts the church. The the way the enemy wants to attack the gospel is through the church. Through the through the, through the gathering of believers. He wants to do damage not just to us as individuals. He wants to do damage to the church. It hurts our witness. It hurts our ability to love Jesus. It hurts our ability to love one another. It hurts our ability to love the world with the message of Jesus. Did we just get a, a weird light that came on? Could we kick that off? Thank you. Catering to my comforts up here. It put me in a weird mood. (laughs) But I think there is something else that we need to consider as equally dangerous to hypocrisy. And, And it actually is connected, if you follow the logic. And it's actually Christians who don't know what they believe who don't know why they believe it, and even more importantly, don't know who they believe. We live in an increasingly secularized society. What I mean by that is, if you read Charles Spurgeon's sermons from the late 1800s, most of us as Christians can't understand them. Do you know why? Because he quotes the Bible too much. We live in a biblically illiterate culture. That wasn't true 100 years ago. You could quote stories from the Bible. People tell me on campus ministry now, just like the the old classic stories, you bring them up and people say, I don't know what you're talking about. Noah who? They didn't get the felt board version. The rainbow and the ark. So it's going to become, church, this is going to become increasingly important. If we're going to really live out loud for Jesus, if we're going to live our faith, what we need to make sure we have nailed down is we need to know what we believe. We need to know why we believe it. We need to know who it is that we believe. Not so that we, don't misunderstand me or misinterpret me here, not so that we can go into the workplace and be the person that beats people up with knowledge. I'm not, man, I'm so far from talking about that. But I'm talking about knowing what we believe because what you believe and what you think about God is going to influence the way you live or don't live for Him. It's, you, I was just doing some of the research this week Listen to some of these statistics. Young people who grew up in Christian families are leaving the Christian faith at alarming rates. Why is that? Southern Baptist Convention did a study recently that 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 denomination 
which is the largest, I believe, denomination in the world. They did a study that, that reported that they are losing 70 to 80% of their young people their freshman year of college. 70 to 80. And many reasons that they give is they've become skeptical of the beliefs that they've been taught. Ligonier and uh, Ligonier Ministries, that's R.C. Sproul, and Lifeway Research, they did a really interesting study. They gave surveys to people who identified themselves as Christians. And what they did was just give them a little test on biblical knowledge. So young people who call themselves Christians hold many views that aren't Christian. So they gave them a survey, answer these questions. That's not a Christian response, but they're identifying themselves as Christians. Oxford University research showed that many young people are incredibly inarticulate about their faith. I'm not picking on the young people. I love you guys. I think our church, in many ways, is, is not descriptive of what's happening out there. We've got a ton of young people in this church. What I want to make sure is young and old alike know what we believe, why we believe, and who we believe, so that we're not incredibly inarticulate about our faith, but we're incredibly articulate. And that our lives, the way we think, doesn't spill out into a form of hypocrisy where we talk about Jesus or we name him with our lips, but our lifestyle is a total denial. Oxford University continues, the faith that we've passed on, this writer, this research professor, says the faith that we've passed on is too spineless to merit much in the way of conversation. One thing you will realize as you wrestle through this letter to Galatians, Paul might be a lot of things, but spineless he's not. He knows what he believes. He knows why he believes it, and he knows who he believes. Do you? Today we're going to get the origin of Paul's religion, which is the origin of the Christian faith in many ways. Do you, do you know where you're coming from? Do you know who, what, why? This is important for us. I want us to have a faith with some spine to it. Because those are the kinds of people that God uses to make a difference in a world that may grow increasingly dark. What is it? Listen, just like Josh Hurst preached a couple weeks ago, I'm, this is not gloom and doom. We win. Jesus wins. Let's not forget that. But how can we be faithfully pushing back the darkness of this sinful, evil world? How can we live in a way that actually what we believe influences the way I talk to people? It influences the way I view life. It, I look at life through this the lens of Jesus. And when I put those glasses on, it affects how everything I think, say, and do. Is that who we're going to be? Is that what Jesus wants from us? Yes, the answer is yes. But we've got to understand things. That's why the Word is so important. It's why we need God's Word. It's why He left us with this. Sometimes I marvel over how, how lackadaisical I am with God's Word. You know, people have given their lives for this. People have given their lives to preserve God's Word. They've gone to jail. They've, they've been beaten. They've been... 
actually murdered because they believe that this is God's word. Paul is an example himself. He's constantly under attack. Why? For this. What's going on in this passage? Paul is on the defensive. What he believes, what he loves, who he believes, who he loves, what he's put his hope in, what he's living for, what is truth, it's all under attack. Jesus and his gospel are under attack, so Paul moves forward to defend. And he's defending against these Judaizers, those that have added circumcision and obedience to the Old Testament law in addition to Jesus so that you can get right with God. And Paul is saying, time out, no. Now let's look at this as we get started here. I read something this week that I think is going to help you guys. So grab your Bibles maybe and mark them up a little bit here. This is going to help you. Having the outline of Galatians in front of you. I like that. Do you like that? Sometimes you get lost. You know how you do that? You start to study something and you kind of get lost. You lose the big picture. Here's the big picture. Galatians outline. The whole letter falls really neatly into three sections. Chapters 1 and 2 are spiritual Biography, autobiography. So first two chapters, biography. Just write that down. One and two, biography. Chapters three and four, theology. Last two chapters, five and six, ethics. Paul always does this. You can track this in his writings. He always starts off with the big ideas, and then he starts to tell you how they work themselves out in your life. This is kind of what we're talking about. If you just start talking, and it's so easy. Listen, chapters 5 and 6 are going to be easier to preach than these first two chapters. Because it's all about things that we have to do, and we love that. It's easy to follow. But if you get to what you do too fast, you don't know what you believe, you don't know why you believe it, you don't know who you believe, you don't, get, you don't have the foundation, then, then you'll mess up in the doing. And you can actually do more damage for Christ than actually being used by him to live out loud and to push back the darkness and to love others the way God has called us to love them. And think of it this way. What Paul is doing is he's building a foundation. If you have any uh, knowledge of building at all, it doesn't matter how beautiful your kitchen is if the dude's messed up the foundation. If the foundation of your house isn't good, you're going to have problems. So Paul's laying the foundation. First two chapters, spiritual autobiography. His life story shows that he's a true apostle who preaches the true gospel of the true God and his free grace. In chapters 3 and 4, he talks about the theology of justification by grace alone. In other words, justification being made right with God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And then he ends with how this works out in our lives. What does it mean for us practically? What are the ethics of the Christian life? So what God has done, as biography, teaches us what we should believe, that's theology, and how we should live, that's ethics. You see it? It's real logical. I like that. I wish I came up with that. So what we have here is the origin of Paul's religion. This is his story. And his story matters. And God's recorded it for us. 
So we're asking ourselves, what are our beliefs based? Does what we believe have any substance to it? Does it have any spine to it? So this is how we're going to proceed. We're just going to walk through Paul's spiritual autobiography, kind of the early years of his when he first became a Christian, and then his encounter with the apostles, which is what we just read about. And then we're going to end, we're going to spend sufficient time talking about what that means for us, applying it to our lives. All right? So let's just dig in and look at this. Paul says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. He's making clear that his authority doesn't come from people because he's under attack. People had come from Jerusalem and they were correcting Paul's teaching. They were saying to the Galatians who were Gentiles, they weren't Jews, they were saying, listen, if you want to be Christians, we know Paul told you something. He told you that salvation, getting right with God, is through grace alone. But he's not right about that. You got to add some works to that. If you want to get right with God, if you want to be in a family of God. And what they were actually saying to them is, you've got to become Jews. You're Gentiles, but you've got to embrace Old Testament law. You've got to embrace circumcision. If you don't, you're not part of the family of God. And so the Galatians were confused by this. That's not what Paul told us. And so what happened was, they started to say, well, who is Paul? And they started to discredit Paul. Before you discredit the message, you discredit the messenger. So they call into question Paul's integrity. They call into question his authority, his apostleship. And so what he's doing is he's moving to defend, and he's saying, listen, this gospel that I'm preaching, I didn't get it from men. I didn't even get it from Peter. I didn't get it from the apostles. Where did he get it? Anybody know? Jesus. He met Jesus. You guys know that story? You do? Should I stop and tell it? He, 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 was on his, he was persecuting the church. He was killing Christians. And on his way to Damascus, he, he has this encounter with the risen Lord. Knocks him off of his donkey. Says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And in a moment, he sees his religious system crumble. Why? Because he sees Jesus for who he is. And he immediately stops persecuting the church and starts planting churches. God so radically changed him. And he's saying that everything I learned about the gospel, we're going to see in this autobiography, I learned from Jesus first. This is not man's gospel. This is God's gospel. But the Judaizers are discrediting him. They're saying to the Galatians, yo, this dude is a second-rate apostle, and he's preaching a second-hand gospel. And Paul is saying, you can say whatever you want about me. But this is not a second-hand gospel. This is the only gospel. It's the only way. He defends himself and he defends his authority, but not for his own reputation. He does that because he believes the gospel's at stake. Paul is willing to suffer, believe me. Do a study of his life and look at how he suffered for Jesus. He's saying, 
guys, I can't let you turn away from this without writing this letter to you because if you turn away from the gospel of free grace and you turn to another gospel, if there even is another one, there's not another one, but if you turn away, you're turning away from God. You're turning away from the only way of salvation. So I'm, I'm saying to you guys, there's nothing more important than the state of your soul and And he's saying to them, I want you to understand the gospel of free grace. Paul adamantly denies that the one true true gospel could have come from anyone or anywhere. The gospel is not man's good news about God. It's God's good news for man. You see the subtleties there? Is the gospel just something we came up with? Is it man's good news about God? If you go to your college campus and start talking about man's good news about God, then you're going to stand in line with the rest of the people that will talk about theories they have that man has come up with for how you you live your life and get meaning out of life. And there's a, a bunch of theories. The gospel is not that, though. Because it's not man created. It's God created. It came from God. And Paul is saying that makes all the difference. Paul didn't get his gospel from a man. Nobody shared the gospel with Paul like Paul did with the Galatians. Nobody shared the gospel with Paul. Imagine that for a minute. Do you believe that? you believe your Bible? Paul is saying, I'm the gospel to the Gentiles. I'm the 12th apostle, so to speak. One of them was a bad egg. He's out. Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. God has called him. I was talking with Amy about this last night. We are just walking around the neighborhood thinking how amazing it was that Paul, who knew his Old Testament, probably had large sections of his Old Testament memorized, and he thought the way to please Jesus was to persecute the church because Jesus was a blasphemer. But he knew it. He knew the Scriptures inside and out and came to a wrong conclusion about God. So God saves him. Like what, In saving Paul, what does he get? He gets probably the person who is like the smartest person that knows the Old Testament and saves him, and then Paul reads the Old Testament again, and all he can see is Jesus in it. Isn't that amazing? Paul. He didn't go forward at a Billy Graham crusade. He didn't read one of those tracks. What do they call them? The chick tracks. Remember those? You guys, you young people probably don't remember those. Real popular in the 70s. People handing them out. He didn't get one of those. Nobody handed him one of those. Nobody discipled Paul. He's unique. We're not going to... We're not going to be like Paul. He didn't consult with anyone. The risen Jesus appeared to Paul. He saw Jesus himself. He learned the gospel from Jesus, so he didn't need to double-check his information. He didn't need the 12 apostles to verify him. He didn't run up to the mother church in Jerusalem for authentication. His opponents were saying his gospel was deficient. 
His opponents were saying his gospel was a weak copy of the real thing. His opponents were saying he didn't get his message from an authorized dealership. Paul is saying, what are you talking about? I am authorized. I didn't get it from man. I didn't get it from the apostles. I didn't get it from Jerusalem. I got it from God. Now what? I've been preaching this gospel from the day I learned it, long before I ever went back to Jerusalem. It says, did you know that Paul, after he heard the gospel, he went into Arabia? Did you know that? Did you see that? That's where he went. Spent three years. Kingdom of Nabataea. It included the city of Damascus. Paul says in another letter to the Corinthian church that the governor of that city was guarding the city to seize him. So he got let down in a basket. You remember that story? This is what happened in the first three years of his ministry. He was in, in Damascus in the kingdom of Arabia. He was preaching the gospel, and he knew that they were on the lookout for him. They had put police surrounding the city to catch him if he came in or if he tried to leave. But I got let down in a basket through a window in the wall, and I escaped, he says. All those years ago, Paul is preaching and they want to arrest him. Why do they want to arrest him? For the same reason anyone ever wanted to arrest Paul, for preaching the gospel of free grace. Then after three years, let's move on in the biography. Then we get some, we get some talk of Peter. Man, Peter and Paul are going to have some interactions too. Wait till you get to chapter 2 and you see Paul have to square off with Peter and squaring off with Peter, I mean, you're talking about the apostle. Peter. Jesus' friend. Gates of hell will not prevail on this rock, Cephas, I will build my church. Man, people have taken that and gone places with it. But the point is, the point is, Paul is going to square off with Peter over some things. But Paul says, I never even spent any time with Peter until after three years, after God called me three years later, after I was already preaching the gospel, I was already planting churches, then I went and spent 15 days with Cephas. Now imagine those conversations. Can you just imagine? Paul who had one encounter with Jesus, Peter knew him. Discipled by him. Close to him. Imagine the questions that Paul had. Now, Paul says he didn't learn anything from Peter. He doesn't mean he didn't learn it. They didn't, when he showed up for two weeks, they didn't just talk about the weather. I guarantee it. He, what was Jesus like? Tell me again that story. Tell me about that miracle. What did the people say when Jesus said that? What did the Pharisees do? Paul goes on to later say that Peter and I, we talked for 15 days, and they extended the right hand of faith to me. In other words, the gospel I was preaching, they agreed with. That's the gospel. 
He said, you're going to the Jews, I'm going to the Gentiles with it. We were in agreement on that. Paul and Peter didn't disagree over the gospel. That's why in the next chapter you're going to see Paul confront Peter over what? Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Paul says, I know what you believe. We agree about what the gospel is, but you're acting in a way, you're living in a way that's not in line with the gospel of free grace. You're acting like you need to become a Jew, and you don't even believe that, Peter. You don't believe that we have to add works to grace. You know Jesus. You know what he taught. You don't believe that. But they sat and talked for 15 days. And then Paul only names one other person, James, the brother of Jesus. Not James, the brother of John, one of the disciples. This is James, the brother of Jesus. He is another one of Joseph and Mary's children. He didn't believe Jesus when Jesus was alive. When Jesus died, rose again. At some point, James became a believer and then became a pillar in the church. So he's leading the church in Jerusalem. And Paul says, I spent some time with him too. Think about the stories he got. Jesus when he was a boy. But he's saying, I I may have learned all kinds of things from them, but one thing I didn't learn. I didn't learn the gospel from them. I learned that from Jesus. John Stott says, Paul's first visitations to Jerusalem Three years after his encounter with Jesus, they lasted only two weeks and he only saw two apostles. It's ludicrous to accuse Paul of obtaining his gospel from the Jerusalem apostles or any other man. And that's what Paul is defending against. I got my gospel from God. He didn't invent the gospel of free grace. He didn't inherit the gospel of free grace. He didn't make it up, the gospel of free grace. He didn't get it from someone else. Where did the gospel of free grace come from? Where did the gospel of free grace originate? God. Imagine Paul's encounter with Jesus. Now, he definitely knew some facts about Jesus. He didn't know Jesus, but he had heard of Jesus. Jesus is on the scene creating a major disturbance. Paul knows some facts about him. And he considers him, prior to conversion, what he had learned about Jesus. He rejected as blasphemy. But then he sees Jesus, his eyes are open, and in an instant he realized that he could never get right with God by keeping the law, but only by coming to Jesus. You know, I think we should give thought to that. We, we just... I, I, I think that one of the things that's, that I, I feel like is hard for me, and I think it's hard for you guys too, is we just don't think about what it would be to encounter God. We just don't think about that. But I think we should think about that. Because one day, you will. This is true. God's really the creator of all things. That means he's the creator of you, and, and one day you'll meet him face to face. Paul thought about those things. Paul met Jesus face to face, and his system, his religious system, 
crumbled before his very eyes. And, and God, in his mercy, said, you don't need that system. All you need is Jesus. He obeys in your place. He lives in your place. He dies in your place. And you get grace. Paul must have said, that's an incredible deal. I'll take it. You know, Martin Luther, I've been reading a little bit about him because, because his, he wrote a commentary on Galatians and the, and the book of Galatians really helped him to understand the gospel. But I don't know how much you guys know about his life. But Martin Luther was like Paul in many ways. He was working hard to make himself right with God. A lot of us just can't even relate to this. Maybe some of you can. Maybe there's someone in here, and I hope you are. I hope you're in here, and this is what I'm going to say is going to put you at ease. Because you've been trying, like Martin Luther, to get God to like you, to get God to save you, to get right with him through your behavior. He was in agony on, over it. He in an effort to make himself right with God, he was physically painful to himself. He deprived himself of food. He refused a mattress and slept on wooden floors. What he was trying to do is he was trying to, to, to cause himself some kind of fizzling, physical suffering in light of who he thought God was, that God would somehow see his efforts to try to please him and would accept him. And he was constantly haunted by this idea that I haven't done enough. I haven't done enough. I, I can't be sure that God actually likes me or loves me or would rescue me or that I could be right with him. In anger and pain over his sin, he actually beat himself. How often do we, how often, are you so concerned over the holiness of God that you beat yourself at night? That's not the culture we live in, is it? That was his, though. He's known to have crawled the supposedly holy staircase in Rome. It was this massive staircase. He crawled on his hands and knees up this staircase, believing that when he got to the top of it, he could be right with God. And he got to the top. And he had no peace in his heart. He never had any confidence that he was right with God. He was haunted by a sense of God's holiness and the weight of his sin. And this is the question. How could a sinful man be made right with a holy God? He lived with constant anxiety that the eyes of God were on him. that he could never stand before the eyes of God and believe that his works had made him right with God. And then he was reading his Bible one day. Romans 1.17, he read, The righteous shall live by faith. And in a moment, he realized that it was faith in Jesus that made him right with God not his ability to earn it on his own. Anybody out here feeling that? 
Anybody feeling like the eyes of God, you're aware of His eye, you're scared to meet Him, you're, you're worried, have I done enough? I have a lot of friends, so many of them Catholic, who, who actually live with no assurance of their faith. A lot of them don't live with any assurance because they're not sure if what they've been doing is good enough to get God to save them. It's a horrible way to live. You can't ever have any peace. Peace comes. Peace with God comes through what? The grace of God in the gospel. Do you want peace for your soul? Do you want to know peace? It comes through Jesus. It comes through His perfect life, death, and resurrection on your behalf. You put your trust in Him and you have peace with Almighty, Holy God. Do you believe that? Do you believe that if you've trusted in, in Jesus, you have peace with God? And it's all through grace. Paul, that's why Paul is so upset because people are going back. It would be like Luther once he learned that he could be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, going back to climbing staircases on his hands and knees and beating himself painfully. That would be inexplicable. And Paul is saying to the Galatians, why would you go back? Why would you go back to that way of living? That's no way of life. Life is found in Christ and in Christ alone and his grace alone. And Paul and Luther went on to say, in his heart, only one doctrine ruled now. Faith in Christ. From it, through it, to it, all my thinking about my theology flows. In other words, his thinking then led to his right actions. You guys with me? That's the story of Paul. It's a hard section to preach. How do you preach the spiritual autobiography of Paul and make any sense of it to us? Let's make a little sense of it right now. We'll take the uh, next five to ten minutes and we'll just try to make some sense of this. What should we take from this? I want to talk about three things. The source of gospel grace, the calling of gospel grace, and the power of gospel grace. I think I've made this point clear. Where does the grace of the Christian faith come from? Or maybe I'll make the question easier. Who does it come from? Jesus. Are you afraid to answer? You should know this. It comes from God. The gospel is not a word from man. It's not a word from below. It's a word from above. It's a word from the Heavenly Father. It's a word from the heavens. It's a word for the ages. It speaks authoritatively. It speaks infallibly to all human beings. So rejection of the gospel of free grace is rejection of God because He is the one that came up with the idea. He's the one that the, the, the gospel of free grace originated with. So if you refuse the gospel of free grace, you are refusing and rejecting God. What does Paul attribute his radical transformation to? The grace of God. There's no human reason for why I would stop persecuting the church and start planting churches except God in His grace opened my eyes to see something that I couldn't see on my own. I was blinded to it. Why did I change? How do I explain my change? God. God's going to get all the credit in Paul's salvation. Is he getting all the credit in yours? Now, there's one thing I think we should see here. It says that Paul was zealous 
for his old ways. He was zealous and sincere. We can't use zealousness and sincerity as a mark of what's true and right. You can be zealously wrong. So, so Paul's sincerity for Judaism didn't make it right. I think that's an important lesson for us because there are some that are zealous for different philosophies, for different ideas. But being the loudest person in the room doesn't necessarily mean you're the most accurate person in the room. Just having zeal doesn't make you right. What makes you right if you're on God's team? If you're on God's side? The gospel is of divine origin. It's heavenly. We can assume that the gospel is true because it comes from God Himself who is true. Why should we believe in the Christian faith? Because it's true. It reflects God's view of reality. Indisputably true because He's the creator of all reality. So we must remember that the source of gospel grace is God. How about the calling of gospel grace? The calling of gospel grace. Paul says that the reason he began to preach the gospel to the Gentiles was because of a calling that he received. God called him to this. I just want to make a comment here. While I was on my sabbatical, um, you know, 21 years in ministry, and I've shared with you guys before that being a Christian and being a pastor, I, I don't necessarily wish that on people. It's not a bad job. But it's difficult. And the reason why it's difficult, and there's a number of reasons why it's difficult, but one of the reasons why it's difficult is because your job is connected to your calling or connected to what you believe God has made you to do. So when you get up on Monday morning and you don't want to go to your job, if you're a pastor, you start to get really confused because you start to think that means I don't want to follow Jesus anymore. And that's not true, necessarily. There are some pastors who get up in the morning and decide not to follow Jesus anymore. But so on the sabbatical, I felt like I needed a break and I needed to try to separate Kenny the pastor from Kenny the, the lover of Jesus. I had to try to get separate. And you can do that if you take some time off. Get away from your job for a while. And I needed to do that. And when I was on my sabbatical, I was meditating on the Gospel of John and one of the things I was seeing is John the Baptist. He starts off the Gospel of John. There's a, John tells us about John the Baptist. John the Baptist, man, what a character. Woo! He'd light this place up with some preaching. Come up in here with his camel coat, camel hair, coat, eating grasshoppers, and a little bit of honey smeared into his beard. Oh, sorry. Amy said, ew. <laughs> this, is, this is not going to last long if I keep doing those kinds of things. <laughs> I'm going to get scalped. Drew Duncan said, you can't get scalped. That's your scalp. He said, you're going to get chinned. 
But I, I was thinking about, I was thinking about, uh, I don't know what they said. I was thinking about John the Baptist and and it, the scripture says that he was called to be a witness, to be a witness. He didn't die, deny the truth. He came to, to tell the truth. He came to talk about Jesus, to prepare the way for Jesus. His whole life was about Jesus. And so I was thinking about, I wonder, it sounds like that's his calling. Like his calling was to tell people about Jesus. But what was his vocation? What did he do for a job? And we don't know. We don't know how he put food on the table. We only know what he was called to do. There's a difference sometimes, oftentimes, for many of us, between a vocation, which is just you have some skills and someone's willing to pay you to do it. A calling is what you were made to do. A calling is what God has made you for. There's a difference between these two things. Why did I need to hear that? I needed to hear that. I needed to be reminded of that because I felt deep down in who I am that God has called me, whether I get paid for it or not, to preach the gospel of free grace. Why? Because he's called me to it. He's made me to do it. I remember before I was a pastor, I used to do funny things. I had this sense that maybe I was called to preach. And so I would stand up like in the woods and just start preaching to the trees. I remember standing on the deck of a barn, standing on the barn and imagining people listening and just starting to drop nuggets of exegetical truth. Nobody was listening, except God was listening. And I, the reason why I did it, because there was something burning down in here to tell people about the free God, grace of God in Jesus. I've got to do that. Even if I'm not a pastor. What's your calling? We're not called to be Paul. We're called to serve the Lord wherever he puts us. What is your calling? Wrestle with that. Go home and think about that. Separate your vocation from your calling. What has God called you to do? What has he made you to be? And how are you going to use those gifts, those talents, and his grace to help people in your community and the, and the people that you live around and do life with? How are you going to help them increasingly submit their life to the only Savior of the world, to Jesus? we got to wrestle with that. Last one. We talked about the source of gospel grace. We talked about the calling of gospel grace. I just want to talk, I want to end talking about the power of gospel grace. And we're going to take communion. Paul, we talked about this last, last week. You talk about the last guy picked for salvation. You know, think about people in your life that are hard. You just can't imagine them becoming Christians. Paul, I mean, he was killing Christians. He was going around as churches were planted. He was going around trying to shut them down. While Peter was, uh, not Peter, while Stephen was proclaiming the gospel, Paul was there. Can you imagine? Paul was there and he supervised. He, I don't know why the coats needed guarding, but but the, the, all the coats were piled up so people's arms were free so that they could all pick up rocks and stone the man. Can you imagine throwing rocks at someone long enough that they die? 
Paul was there. He supervised it. He saw Stephen give his life for Christ from rocks. His life snuffed out from rocks being thrown out. Paul was there. He's the last guy you pick for salvation. When Cephas, when Peter got a knock at the door and they said, hey, someone's downstairs to see you. Who is it? They say, it's Paul. Paul who? Paul persecutor? Tell him I'm not at home. I'm not trying to get killed. He was the last one. No wonder people didn't know of him or, or they, didn't, they, they didn't see him in person. When Paul walked the streets, people bolted. Anybody that was a Christian ran away. He's the last guy picked. He's a reminder to us all that God plucks out the last one picked. He plucks out the, the least expected. He plucks out the nobodies. He plucks out those that have wrong ideas about him, and he saves us by this gospel of free grace. Salvation is a miracle. It reminds us that ultimately we didn't choose God. God chose us. What should that do? It should create praise and wonder. And I think this is where we're going to go as we talk about communion. We take communion now. We should never give up praying for the least likely person we think to become a Christian. Because if God can save Paul, if he can take Paul, the persecutor of churches, save him and make him a planter of churches, what can he do with you? What can he do with that person that you're praying for? Let's turn our attention. We think about these things. Who we believe, what we believe, and why we believe it. And let's give our attention to Jesus through communion.